Good afternoon. My name's Dave Schneider. We're here at Autonomous Furniture. This is my first podcast from the Dave Schneider podcast series, and I'm delighted to have Stuart Muir from ResourceWorks with us today. It's actually a very interesting day in BC, and especially in Victoria. And Stuart will get to that in a minute, as people are finding out right now that they might not have gas for their, for their car. But uh, I'm really delighted that I'm starting off this series with Stuart. And I, I was thinking of Stuart and ResourceWorks, kind of like myself my whole life. I've always been the David and Goliath, the David of the David and Goliath series, whether it's in, in work and especially in sports. And I got a kick out of meeting uh, Stuart and his work a year or so ago and then watching what he's been writing and advocating. And uh, you have a tall order in charge of you. So why don't you explain to the viewers Sure. What resource works is, and I'd love to hear it. Yeah, thanks for, for noticing us when you did, David. And we've been in touch for some time now. There's so much to talk about when I look at the torrent of information you receive. I also right. am in receipt of that, that same thing every day. And, uh, you know, you look at the, the basis of, of our lives in Canada, it's, it's because of natural resources and those commodities we produce sustainably, responsibly, that we have the, the way of life we have. There's, right. there's no other explanation for it. Occasionally I see people trying to venture alternative theories as to why uh, we're so well off in Canada, but it, it, it never holds water because we, we really do, as a small trading nation, depend on this. And the reason uh, I started ResourceWorks a number of years ago was because a lot of people in business were looking around saying, um, there's a, a lack of economic literacy, resource literacy, uh, where the you know, general population, people weren't connecting the dots as to you know, why things are connected. Why, why does uh, the tap produce water when I turn it on? Or, or when I plug that thing into the wall, why, why does it uh, light up? Um, why, why does my car move from point A to point B? Most people are too busy and I, I'm, not, uh, uh, I, I'm not calling them out because they have busy lives. People right. are raising children, they're working a couple of jobs to pay the rent. Uh, but, but they still, I think, at the political level, need help to understand. Like I, I've met ministers in all kinds of different governments, including um, left-right governments, who once I get talking to them, I realize, wow, this person doesn't have a clue about how the economy works. And that's kind of scary because they're making decisions. So it's not just about you know, the general public. It, it has consequences when decisions have to get made on projects moving forward or right. rules and regulations. Uh, it has real consequences when um, short-term political egos are stroked at the, the long-term cost of, of ensuring that we are able to uh, continue the way of life we have. So that's really the basics of it. And I'll tell you, I've learned a lot over these eight years of doing resource works. Uh, one of them is our, our work has barely begun, you know. Right. Um, just when I think, okay, we're making a little progress, it seems like uh, we're, we're moving back 100 steps. And, uh, you know, you mentioned today uh, what, what's happened the, almost for, for those who have lost a family member. I know there's one person um, confirmed in, in Lillooet who lost her life and there are missing vehicles. So I feel very bad today. Mm -hmm. I know everyone is, is, is feeling that grief um, and there may be more of that. And the, the farms in, in uh, the Fraser Valley where they're losing livestock and keeping things otherwise safe so far. And there's going to be a lot more consequences of a non-life-threatening form still to come because of this flooding. It's going to be a reminder, though, of, of all these things that I talk about at ResourceWorks, because when the trains don't move, uh, we don't have an economy, because then the ships can't move. Or if they move, they have nothing to ship. Um, and that's just the beginning of this complex 
economy that uh, creates the lives we have. So this stuff really matters, even though you know it can be kind of boring and you know commodities and and these billion-dollar figures that are hard to get your head around if people are trying to find the next hundred dollars to pay their their hydro bill. I mean, right. Um, but but nevertheless, it's it's obviously as as all your viewers know of of this program, uh, it's highly consequential. And two great articles this week: one from Brad Wall, former premier mm -hmm. of Saskatchewan, who uh, did a speech in Calgary recently to the Fraser Institute, standing ovation. He talked about the cost of living issues with some of these the policies that are coming out, both provincially and especially federally. Joe Oliver yesterday in the National Post echoed the same things: cost of living. Well, what's happening today, and you mentioned uh, before we started the meeting that there was going to be a press conference with the province because why don't you tell what's really going on in Victoria, especially yeah, with gas? Well, Victoria is out of road fuel. Um, there won't be any gas. I, I'm not sure exactly why. It, there, there's two things going on. One is the supply of fuel out of the Trans Mountain pipeline, and it gets barged over if we get fuel. I believe some fuel may come from the refinery complex just over the border in Washington State. Um, but it all goes to one point, at Hatch Point, um, up at on the other side, the north side of the Malahat, and that road is currently operating at a very small level. So between those two factors, we're very soon, if not already, out of fuel at the gas stations in Victoria, Greater Victoria. There's over 300,000 people who live here, and uh, they don't have other ways to get around. There's not a lot of transit. Um, there's some pretty far distances, so right. I think uh, we're going to realize uh, how dependent we are on fossil fuels, which um, I, I hope no one suffers. I hope that ambulances can get people to hospital and any emergencies can be dealt with, but there is a side of me that's kind of secretly saying, well, maybe we will uh, see some policymakers and politicians uh, realize that when they make decisions that are actually meant to squeeze out these fuels over a longer time, they'll realize that there's not an easy alternative to them. There's not a cheap alternative. There's not even a technologically mature alternative right. in, in many cases. Yeah, I still remember having um, the uh, meetings with Ian Anderson. I had him speak twice to groups with respect to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Both times I had to get security. It was always sensitive right. that he, he was even talking in Victoria. And he reminded the group that we had about four days. If there's any disruptions with the Trans Mountain Pipeline, um, pipeline, um, there was going to be difficulty with gas mm -hmm. supplies to the island, especially Victoria. So, look at where we're happening. So, mm -hmm. I think people in Europe have realized with the cost of living, with prices, with the lack of fuel, they're waking up, and I think they're waking up, especially today on November seventeenth. There's some great things happening in the province. Why don't we start with the positives? And your most viewed article recently has been the one about how large this LNG industry yes. is going to be on the oh, coast. Oh, that's right, yeah. So we've got the LNG Canada project, which is half finished in Kitimat. And when it's finished, and I did a back of the napkin calculation right. on this, which I think is pretty accurate. Uh, when it's finished in about 2025 and start shipping, if the same LNG prices are uh, in effect at that time as were over the last couple of months where we've had a, a gas crisis and the price has gone up quite a bit more than usual but if you had those prices in 2025 or after um, the the total value of the cargo shipped out 350 ships a year would be 48 billion dollars that would be you know coming through the trade accounts of Canada and um, a hu huge part of that would go to government uh, you know billions of dollars would go to 
to the provincial government directly through the LNG tax, and then, of course, all of the economic activity associated with the production of gas, shipping of it, the environmental protections that need to be expensively created. All of that creates uh, income taxes and property taxes and GST and PST. So um, that, that's going to be a driver that will transform Canada, which I don't say lightly. $48 billion is um, about a little, over, almost uh, uh, a quarter of the total commodity trade of Canada, of, of total goods exports of Canada. It's only, you know, um, a couple hundred billion a, a year. Right. And uh, you add 48 billion. billion that, um, imagine the change. So everyone in elected office who does anything to do with spending money, whether it's to build bridges or what have you, um, should be jumping for joy that this project is coming because it's going to make their jobs easier. Um, I wish we actually saw them jumping for joy rather than throwing up every roadblock they can think of in a lot of cases. Not you know, not the local governments, not the First Nations governments, all 20 of them support the, the pipeline up there. But where, where is the pushback? Where is it coming from? Well, there's one point of contention there, which uh, about a decade ago, I think down at Berkeley, California, they, they saw an opportunity to fund um, a, a local group there to uh, try to stop the Enbridge pipeline, the Northern Gateway pipeline from going through. That's turned into a bit of a thing. and. And now there's an anarchist movement that uh, one person who is, you know, authentically tied to the Wet'suwet'en nation uh, has, has worked with. You know, they're bringing in um, high, radical uh, extremist uh, individuals from other parts of Canada, other parts of the world, to manufacture what they um, sadly uh, appropriate the local First Nations name, the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, as if that's the First Nation. Um, you know, if you were uh, protecting the trademark in business and someone started using your company name right. to do something that was against your interest, you'd, you'd be able to take them to court pretty easily, I think, and win. Um, the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, which is really small, there's about 5,000 of them, and I've, I've visited the villages there. Um, the majority of them have voted uh, at their local council elections to support this project. And I've interviewed them in my travels across the Bulkley Valley in the northwest of BC. And um, they, 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 they want those jobs. They want the own source revenue. That's the greatest struggle First Nations have. You know, I, I know there's a popular myth that, that First Nations or Indigenous peoples generally in Canada um, like to get a handout. I mean, I remember growing up in you know, this province, you hear all sorts of derogatory statements. And I can tell you, it's, there's no truth to that. What First Nations, I think, want is for others, even well-meaning people, to get out of their way. For, for them to do the things they want to do. It's not up to me or you to say what that is, whether that's to promote or stop a project or to provide a solution for their education or anything. It, it's the duty, I think, is the moral duty is to get out of the way and, and be a facilitator. And, and, and that's a way to be respectful of rights. Um, and one of the big stories this past year, speaking about First Nations and trying to get business and work done on their territory, relates to Ferry Creek. And, and that is a huge story. Yeah. Why don't you give me your perspective of what's really going on there? Yeah, well, I went out to Ferry Creek last week, uh, and I, I stopped in at the Pechidep First Nation Cedar right. Mill. It's the most beautiful office you could imagine. I'd love to work there because you look out the back of it and you see this, this uh, vista of receding hills and mountains wreathed in fog and cloud. <clears throat> Just a beautiful sight, and it's a mild climate here on the coast. Of course, it's at sea level, and there they, right, 
right now, or when I was there, they were taking recycled old growth logs that had been used previously to build bridges and culverts and long roads around there. They were being replaced, and they take them out. Still good, right? It's cedar, it lasts forever. And they were turning those into boards that will be marketed and, and very profitable because everyone wants that beautiful cedar that, that is rot resistant and looks great. And so that's what they were doing. Um, there's probably six occasions when the protesters that I think everyone probably knows about have been asked to leave by the Apache. That they've issued letters. They've said, you know, we, we don't, we don't appreciate you here in our territory. We can handle our own affairs. And yet, you've got these movements of people coming in from outside. Um, probably some university kids who are coming in thinking they're saving the planet by pretending to be the Pechidat First Nation, and uh, it's, uh, it, it's it's terrible. The, the uh, first growth, growth, old growth is what's being protested, but in fact uh, much of that logging is second growth. It's been sustainably managed in the local forest uh, businesses for decades, you know, it goes back to the 60s and, and earlier. And uh, I've spent a lot of time around there. And then the bottom line there is that, uh, you know, Ferry Creek is a location of convenience for protesters. There's, there's really nothing particular about it that's different from um, a whole host of other places. It just happens to be an easy drive to Victoria where a lot of the protest or pressure group organizations are based. And it has a nice name to put on the fundraising literature. Uh, otherwise, Ferry Creek is, is a, it's a wonderful place. It's a beautiful place because it's been sustainably logged. And the reason people can go and visit places like Eden Grove and Avatar Grove and go see Big Lonely Doug, which I did too, is because the loggers and the forest companies are maintaining those roads. Otherwise, they would be like all those parks that were removed from the total harvestable land base in the 90s, which you could no longer go to. Now they're just there on a map. You can appreciate. If you want to appreciate them, look at a map. Look at Google Earth. You can't go there because there's no industry. There's no roads. Yeah. And if you want to read more about it, I know on your ResourceWorks website, there's yes. some great articles that you have, and we'll go, we'll go back to that. But you know, speaking of great wood, we're here at Autonomous Furniture, Kirk and his team at Autonomous Furniture. Yes. We're just around a few things, but the wood comes from BC. Amazing work that he does Beautiful. here. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. uh, we'll follow up more on that story, but one thing I wanted to get to is just a story that you put out this week was um, a story about Gloria and the mink business. So right. the big LNG business, but the mink, the mink business isn't big, but it's important. Tell us what the BC yeah. government just did. Well, you know, Dave, I really saw a connection there between what the, the, the mink farm industry in BC is going through right now and what lots of other bigger industries are seeing. And in this case, it's much more vulnerable than oil and gas or mining or forestry, but it's a similar story. Here's, here's a, um, a sustainable, uh, responsible, highly regulated industry, the mink farm industry. It's not that big. It's worth probably 12 million a year, and it exports to different parts of the world. Right. Uh, they they market their their furs through a company that has direct lineage back to the Hudson's Bay Company. So it goes back to 1670, the very founding of Canada, and and that's how it's marketed. There's all kinds of different uses. People think of clothing, but. Uh, our, one of our experts here at ResourceWorks insists that paintbrushes and things are, uh, are manufactured using special furs like that. So right. all kinds of things, so probably other things too. And so it caught my attention a couple of weeks ago that the BC government had just stood up and said, uh, uh, we're going to eliminate that industry and did by a st stroke of a pen. Why? Because they say that there's a COVID risk because mink can be uh, right. uh, carriers of COVID. There's a mink... Uh, 
uh, a MIG version of it. And it, can it go back and forth to, to humans and animals? It, it can do that. Um, but there's a mink vaccine, and it's being managed in the Netherlands and Denmark, which are the, the world-dominant mink farming uh, jurisdictions. They, they don't have this problem because they have decided that they can manage their mink farms and succeed with that. So they've taken the 10 farms that are here in BC and they said, okay. we're going to shut you down. And um, I thought, wow, that's, that's a little harsh. Isn't there a way to manage it? Well, you know, there's... There, there's a scientific paper I referred to. There were two papers done by experts. There was a panel of a dozen veterinary scientists who were composed. They, they did an extensive study over months. They reported out, they said it's unlikely and highly unlikely for there to be this transmission. So when I saw the provincial health officer stand up with the agriculture minister and say, in my opinion, there's a risk here. I, I was, my thought was, did you read your own report? Because had you done that, you would have concluded what they've concluded in Denmark and the UK and the Netherlands and Nova Scotia, right. that you know this is, yes, there's risk, and there's always risk or hazard, um, but it's manageable. And yet, um, when I wanted to find out who's affected by it, it's not just the farmers who've got their life savings tied up in this, and you can't convert a mink farm to cattle or something else. You know, it's very specific, so you're done. You've got the land, yes, but the, the improvements on it are, as pertains to the livestock, are, are done, and you've lost that. Um, people have bank loans, federally ma uh, managed bank loans that they'll have to pay back. But anyways, I looked at the workforce. I found uh, uh, a new Canadian. Her name is Gloria. She's been in Canada for 20 years. She worked that whole time in one mink farm. She earns in her sector above the average wage. They get a bonus for staying around and a bonus for productivity. So they get right. like $5,000 a year as a bonus as a farm worker. That's, that's pretty good money. Well, she's going to be told, Gloria, um, you know, so long you're, you're out of work, along with a couple of hundred other people who work really hard in that industry. So, um, you know, I, I looked up MLAs who were lobbied. They were swarmed by a small group of very vocal uh, animal rights people. They make $111,000 a year. That's the base. If they're on committees, they get anything more. You know, this decision doesn't affect them at all. Right. Um, it does affect, you know, some public revenues, but it won't touch their salaries. I, I think they should maybe take a pay cut instead of, and let Gloria keep her job. They could maybe direct some part of their salary. That would be, that would be justice. I, I think when you just did a stroke of a pen for no scientific reason, for no good reason at all, when you eliminate an industry. Well, we're used to a lot of decisions yeah. in BC with a lot of not scientific evidence. I'm afraid so. Um, to move along, uh, everyone knows about the COP26 conference. There's enough people that have said uh, what a waste of money, time, and resources. Um, in a different way, you're at a, at a conference with a bunch of elites in Banff recently, and you're again kind of by yourself with these Eastern powerhouse yeah. foundations, business leaders, yes. political leaders. Why don't you give the viewers a take of what you <laughs> saw when you're sitting around with people that really, again, aren't being affected, but yeah. want to stop worthwhile projects. Yeah, yeah, it, it, was, it was interesting to see people who come from, in, in, in some cases, uh, these wealthy uh, dynastic families from Montreal or Toronto who are so outside of the experience of ordinary people, you know, everything is given to them, who are involved in these, uh, these, these foundations and campaigns to find out, you know, who can they give money to to stop that thing happening in BC that, that we dislike in our finery in Montreal. Um, I met quite a few people like that and, uh, you know, it's interesting to listen to them and hear their perspective and, and just marvel at how, how one can get through life with, without uh, a clue really as to 
why they're so wealthy. And uh, um, but uh, you know, I, th I think there's lots of well-off people, and I know I know most well-off people actually do care for others and, and express that through philanthropy and so on, and that's good. But I. I was uh, walking by a table, a, a friend of mine who used to be in politics was there and said, come on over here, Stu. And uh, she was there with uh, a few gents and said, look, we're playing a little game here. Everyone has to say the most controversial thing, like a policy thing right. that everyone would disagree with. I said, okay, and I'll, I'll take part. And people were naming, it, they didn't have very controversial, controversial things to say, but uh, it was a good discussion. It came to be my turn. And I discovered everyone who had spoken was from Quebec. And I said, look, here's my controversial idea. It's that in, in Quebec where you just uh, uh, said no to a gas pipeline that will help, uh, if, if it was successful, it would have produced LNG that would help Europe to decarbonize, which it's trying to do. It said no to the Energy East pipeline, made that impossible uh, because it, uh, Alberta wanted to monetize a, a resource for the benefit of all Canadians. They said no to the, those things. When I talked to a lot of Quebecers, not all, because the, the ordinary Quebecer actually has their head screwed on, but the you know the, the the chattering classes, the elites there, I think are in this sort of zone of of self-importance uh, that was dealt a bit of a setback recently when their transmission for electricity line to Massachusetts was right. voted down by vo voters in Maine. But anyways, here here was my controversial thing to this group of Quebecers. It was, uh, look, you you guys don't like fossil fuels. That's fair. Uh, you. you why don't you just to prove to us that you have the moral high ground that you you know that you claim you have that you really belong on it? Why don't you do this? All of the equalization dollars that come your way because of Alberta, because of fossil fuels, you just need to say no to. And when you do that, I'll believe that you are morally superior to me. And the response was um, that incomprehension, like right. they were unable to process um, what I was saying, and it was just. It, they were baffled. Like, why would I say that? We're, those are our dollars. You know, the West is is the resource region. You're there to serve us. Why would you ever question your duty to provide dollars to downtown Montreal? But it, it was just they were unable to comprehend the question or the the point I was making. So, I th I think I won that round. Okay. One. Uh, one that you shared a couple of weeks ago about all these emissions and emissions of mm. numbers and what we're going to do. Uh, you, you showed me some graphs of BC relative to the world. Yeah. Everybody worries about BC, but why don't you give the viewers some ideas of how minimal our numbers really are? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, if you if you chart it against, say, China, you you can't even see it. I mean, if you chart Canada against China, it's it's barely visible. It's a flat line in, in China. Um, I mean, th that in no way, in, in my view, um, you know, gets us off the hook for having to do the right thing and make sure we're performing uh, well. But I think a bit of perspective, especially after Glasgow and the COP26 conference where this uh, sort of mass gathering where people are in a fervor, it was a bit like a revival tent right. uh, with a Scottish accent and uh, um, they, uh, they came home to spread the word, and, and I, I think a lot of people who stayed home and watched it from afar, I mean, we didn't really get wrapped up in the emotion of it. I think it's, uh, if you think through, uh, yeah, we need, a, we need to, to improve the, the ways that we use particularly non-renewable uh, resources, and that's happening. You know, if you take a car, say you bought a Toyota uh, Corolla in, in 20, 2008, say, 
um, and then you bought the same model, same engine size, displacement, 10 years later, you would have bought a car that was, I've run this number, I think it's about 20% greater efficiency. It'll go further. Why? Because of technology. Um, all kinds of different technologies. And if you just keep doing those things through to the middle of this century, we're actually going to have a fleet, if we still have uh, uh, internal combustion cars, that is far more efficient than these ones. And the biggest gain that we can make in in climate has to do, or emissions performance, has to do with, with uh, efficiency, um, preventing loss of of, of heat or inefficient, right. uh, um, you know, if we if we capture that, we would reach all of those goals. Now we can't capture it overnight. It's going to take thousands of innovations over time. And I think that's, you know, the big thing that uh, is lost. You know, there's this sense of well, if we just sort of stop doing this, we'll solve the problem. Um, but it's not like that. It, it's uh, it's many it's many small things. And I think you know policymakers understand that. Um, but I think the public is sort of has been targeted by people who can't figure out how to get folks alarmed. So we, we hear more and more about the alarming talking points that are meant to ensure citizens vote the way they should vote when it comes time to do that. Yeah. And, and I think that kind of has, a, has an effect. Um, you know, we see uh, the new environment minister federally. Is That's what I was going to get to. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Stephen Guibault, uh, He's, he's an extremist. I don't think he has any affection for the West in general, certainly not for the energy sector of the West. His organization before politics was, was there to try to um, eradicate the oil sands, and there's no reason to think that in government he's there to do anything else. I mean, if I was him, you know, I'm a conservationist like you. We, we want to improve performance. We want to protect the environment. That's the right thing to do. Uh, in so doing, do we want to uh, deprive uh, people of opportunities, especially if those are people who have a harder time getting a foot on the bottom ladder, uh, the, uh, the bottom rung of the ladder. Uh, you know, I think we have a duty to to do that. I've spent a lot of time in Alberta the last couple of years, and you see um, people who are struggling in so many different ways, who have lost the hope that they could right. have a job, and they're just floating around. They're they're lost people. They, they haven't gone somewhere else. When, when their job is erased with a stroke of a pen by a bureaucrat or a politician in Ottawa, those people don't just sort of vanish. They don't go and find a miracle job installing solar panels for $100,000 a year. No, they sit in a, a, a housing complex um, with food stamps, and that's the existence. There's no alternative employment. And one of the things that is represented at resource work on your, your committees, and one thing you, you articulate a lot on your articles and what you do a lot is, is how much the resource sector is working with First Nations communities throughout the province. Well, I've learned so much, David, right. through, through the resource sector because they are the vanguard of, the vanguard. of, of Indigenous prosperity and reconciliation in this country. They get very little credit for it. I'm, afraid to say. They deserve more and I'm actually working to build awareness of that across all industries. But right. you know, any industry that works in rural Canada is more likely to encounter First Nations because that's where so many First Nations are located. Yes, there's lots of urban ones that are often quite successful or not, but you go to rural Canada and you know, a map of BC, well, all of it is, is in someone's territory. Right. Yeah. Um, the fishing industry is having some challenges. Give, give us a take of what you're, what you're seeing out there, some of the things that need to be done to improve. 
Well, you've got the the wild fisheries and you've got aquaculture. I mean, to start with the, the second one, you know, over the last few decades in BC, we've seen um, many First Nations from the central coast, like uh, Kitasu, to the North Island, to the west coast of the island, who have been mightily involved in uh, the salmon farming and other aquaculture industries. They've done really well, but again, sort of like the mink farmers, uh, activists got involved who found ways to pretend to represent First Nations and, and convince people in government of that. I mean, some of it was authentic, for sure, but, but a lot of it wasn't. And that has led to communities losing some of the best paying jobs they have in an industry that, you know, when I talk to the scientists, all the federal scientists um, that I've spoken to, when I've said, you know, is this okay? Is this a safe industry? Because right. I'm hearing all this stuff. They'll say, yeah, it's, you know, here's the evidence. And, and you look at the scientific evidence, you realize, well, that this is a totally different story. So why would the government have done what it did? I mean, they had the same scientific advice that I had access to. They just decided to ignore it. That's the difference. But when it comes to the wild fishery, I think, uh, um, I mean, this is a very divisive issue. There's obviously stocks issues with uh, a number of fisheries, and we, we shouldn't expect that problem to go away. We have very little scientific understanding of what's going on under the sea, right. in the middle of the ocean. I mean, we know that there is this massive industrial fleet from certain country in Asia that, that has become pretty notorious for its disregard for, for anything to do with the seas, and right. that's got to affect things. Um, but as far as uh, you know, the recent uh, move on on the salmon licenses on the on on the the, the west coast, um, we saw that uh, the, the fisheries minister lost her job in uh, Atlantic Canada because um, of of a perception that they in Ottawa were, were out of touch with local people. And I think there's a lot of people who feel that way. Certainly, that was a factor in the federal election recently on the North Island, where. Right. Um, I don't think the Liberals got very many votes up there because uh, people felt that had been mishandled. Yeah. So when you're trying to do resource development and you have so many roadblocks, you so many people against, it's a certain way of thinking. Mm. And I always think of uh, the progressive, the, the, the so-called left wing. In Canada, they penetrated the universities and they've taken over the universities. Here in town, you've got the... Um, You've got the environmental law group that puts up roadblocks to you. We've got the media that seems to be swayed a certain way. Government seems to be swayed a certain way. And now corporations have to take certain stances from their branding and image look. There's a lot of challenges out there. What's your, what's the, if you had more resources, more support, what would you be really trying to do? What, what, what would be your game plan? Yeah, well, it's funny. I was, I was in the conversation just like this um, this morning. Uh, an, an analyst from, from New York City with, uh, with a firm whose name everyone would recognize um, asking you know, that same question. Is Canada going to have projects in future? I mean, yeah, the ones that are underway now, they're going to be finished. LNG Canada, CGL, they all got finished. TMX finished. Site C, all those big projects. Um, and, you know, I'd like to give a bit of credit to the current provincial government. I mean, we're a bit kind of being critical on a few right. issues. They've supported those issues, those, those projects in getting through. So, you know, someone understands the value of them. They will be finished. But then the question is, well, what about the next one? What, what about a new, from a standing start one, that in this new era of ESG dominance uh, comes through? I, I think that any such project, which will be needed, I mean, we're going to need the infrastructure. We're dealing with uh, still a 1950s pipeline that Victoria is, is going to be shut down probably within a few days. People won't be going anywhere except by bicycle. Um, 
you know, and, and that's because we, we are linked by this 1950s piece of infrastructure, our highways. Look at Highway 99, Highway, highway 1 up through the canyon. Um, I, I realize there's a difficult economic case for investing in it, but a country like Canada, we should be investing in that sort of big infrastructure. We can, you know, we, we could do that, but we have to make decisions and follow through. When it comes to transmission lines in the future um, that are needed for the the era of electric vehicles, which seems to be coming, um, those will have to get built just like they were before electric vehicles. And you think there won't be opposition to them as well? So all the things that we need to do in, in the needs of the future will be equally problematic. I think they'll be very hard. You know, we, we saw that in the state of Maine with that decision. I mean, they should be embracing having more electricity for all the things that they say they're going to do, but they're not. So how do you solve it? Well, I think number one in BC with our particular um, um, history here, it will be the First Nations that become the, the, the beneficiaries, the solution providers, the champions of good quality projects. Um, and that will only happen, should only happen, if they are appropriately benefiting from, from those. And obviously that's something that we haven't done the best job of in the past. Um, and so that's one of the things that I think through reconciliation, through UNDRIP, um, that we have, unlike any other country, we, we have embraced that into our um, subnational and national uh, legislation. Uh, we're, we're a global leader. I wish we'd get some credit for that. Um, it doesn't seem to make a difference what you do in, e, do in ESG. It's just, oh, you solved that, we're just going to move on to criticize you and beat you over the head with the next thing on our list. And right. it's an endless list. So, um, yeah, I think ESG is an interesting conundrum and everyone's talking about it. Like, okay, we've done our ESG, but they're still down on us. What's going on? We've, we've improved all the things we, we were told we had to improve and, and still we're not moving forward. That's when I think you do need um, people electing uh, leaders to positions of policy influence and, and uh, um, legislative influence to, to be confident. And, and to be confident, they need to be educated. And right now, they're not getting educated. Um, you, you see, even in our universities, it was, you know, I come from the humanities side, but as a historian of science and environment, um, it became very easy to me to think that on the other side of UBC that there's the engineers and the biologists. That was part of my world. I never had a, I never thought there was an invisible wall there, but I think that that does occur. A lot of the people who go into government and policy come from the humanities or arts side. They don't really have any sense of, of the physical challenges of, of uh, you know, engineering. And, and so they don't have any sympathy when they get into positions of power about that. And I think that's a real problem. But you know what's happening? Um, I'm working on a startup in biotech. I to, wanted to get to that. To, yeah. And, well, yeah, we'll get into the more the details. But what I found, I mean, the scientists we're, we're working with, the younger ones especially, you know, there's, there's all these topics they're kind of shy to talk about. And I'm, I've been probing, they're like, why are you talking? Well, they're getting the same woke stuff in the sciences happening. And almost all open, honest debate on any kind of issue is now suppressed. Universities are places of a, of a, of a omerta of those who want to control the agenda, um, preventing those who, who wish to say what they wish to say as, as academics, freely expressing themselves, not with extreme positions, I don't think, although universities should be, you know, it's up to academics what to say. You know, that's, that's being suppressed. We're paying for that. Um, you know, maybe we should be finding alternative methods for universities to fund themselves that are based on societal performance. Yeah. I, I, 
I don't know how many years ago, but I try to, as I'm trying to do with this series, is open, honest debate. Mm. And uh, my friend Ian was the leader of the of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So here we are at UVic. Wouldn't it be great to have a conversation with the students, with some business leaders, and just talk about it? Yep. Wasn't allowed. Yes. And um, and hopefully things like this encourage. And what I've been saying for many months now, until people feel pain, un pe until people get some inconvenience, because people aren't stopping their spending, and that's why we're having some issues with inflation, with supply chain issues. It's ironic that now food costs, food shortages, and now not able to get in, have any gasoline. Yeah. Um, maybe people will want those open, and honest debates. Um, and uh, I think it'll happen sooner than... Yeah, it'll happen when we walk out <laughs> of autonomous furniture. I think we'll, we'll probably be seeing uh, some shelves empty. It's, uh, yeah, it's funny, the expectation was that uh, the interior of BC was the one cut off. They're not cut off at all. They, they, they've got Edmonton and the whole prairie yeah. supply chain that can zoom right in there. Yeah. It's Vancouver and Victoria and other uh, nearby places that are going to be... Yeah, and people are going to learn a little bit more about the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline, but uh, it is a great story built in the 50s. It is one of the most uh, incredible architectural marvels back then to yeah. build that thing over the Rockies and so forth. And I think people are going to, uh, people are going to uh, learn more about this. I wanted to f finish off because there's a lot of people that are down on things, but one thing I know that we have in Canada is an entrepreneurial spirit. There's a lot of great people. I remember talking to Pat Kenny in Calgary, our top uh, pipeline analyst, yeah. and he says, David, the amount of innovative ideas that are coming out of Calgary, coming from the energy companies, doing things that are so creative, yeah. it's unbelievable. And we're hearing stories. And yesterday I received an email from uh, a client's uh, accountant on all these great things happening in Calgary. You are seeing some things, you're part of something in Vancouver. Uh, why don't you share what you're seeing out there on the innovative yeah. side? Well, you know, uh, a decade ago when I started ResourceWorks, uh, I would go to Calgary and get into the, the plus 15 there. And, you know, you're, you're walking among the towers there. And just think back, I bet everyone who's, who's uh, watching, listening, uh, has, has been there and seen this for themselves. But everyone had a spring in their step, right? They're going somewhere. They're zooming past you uh, in, those, in those halls. They, they were just, you could feel the energy. It was very youthful as well. It seemed like the demographic was, uh, was, was 20s and 30s, and, and after that you were getting old. And it was great seeing those people, that, because they were building projects. They were going up into the towers to the rock. And, and I just love the energy. But you know what, that got crushed. It got crushed after 2014. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's coming back now. I think uh, those same people, they've got the degrees. Uh, a lot of them have stuck around, they've stuck it out and they're looking for, for different new things. There's gonna be, I think, big investments in carbon capture and hydrogen, but all sorts of other things, unusual things. I mean, here's the city of Calgary, look at those air links. Anywhere in, in the world you wanna go, you can get to quickly. They've expanded the terminal. They've got uh, you know double redundancy systems in the towers. So you wanna put in mission critical offices, centers for whatever. You know, I've, I've stood in offices in downtown Calgary where someone is literally watching a, a well being fracked in the north of Alberta and telling the people on the ground, you gotta go around, you, you gotta watch for that crack there because right. they can see it in, in real time. And, and that's because they've got the, the fast network links and they've got you know uh, all, all the redundancy they need in their system. So th there are acres, probably 
many hec acres, hectares of empty office space with that uh, quality sitting there in downtown Calgary. I, I can't believe it hasn't been identified yet as sort of the next Silicon Valley. Like it's the biggest bargain probably in North America to be able to uh, um, go out and, and you know start a business there. People are starting to realize it now because it's become a tech hub. Yeah, and uh, and to close. Quick plug of your company that yes. you're associated with? Tersa Earth, T-E-R-S-A, okay. that means clean, Latin. Uh, and we are in the acid rock drainage space to use na natural processes to clean acid rock drainage water uh, and return it to the ecosystem. Okay, and we'll try to share the link to your company there. Thank you. I want to thank uh, a very entrepreneurial person, Kirk Van Ludwig, who started this business, Autonomous Furniture, I don't know, what, six, seven years ago? And, and everybody told them there's no way you should be doing it. And what a successful company taking wood from uh, different parts of BC and creating some of the most beautiful furniture nice. uh, that he, I think over 80% of his clients are uh, outside of Canada. And I really appreciate uh, Kirk and Autonomous Furniture offering this. And I'm trying to start an open, honest debate, just like Megyn Kelly in the United States. This is a great first edition. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Dave. Bye for now.